0: Welcome to another edition of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. I'm Craig. And today's December 1st. We thought we'd kick off the holiday season with a series of Christmas-themed horror films. Starting off with what I think is the epitome of the Christmas-themed horror film, Black Christmas. Yeah, it's one of the big ones. And just to be clear to everyone listening, we're talking about the original Black Christmas from 1974, directed by Bob Clark. Correct. And not the
1: newer one. Have you seen the newer one? I have. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not as good, Todd. In fact, I, I don't think I would even recommend it. Okay. Um, there, the things, some of the things that are, are unique and good about this, they changed, and it it. it didn't work, at least uh, in my humble opinion. You mean the remake actually screwed up the original? Well, I know. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to believe, <laughs> but does uh, that happen. I don't know. You know, even standing alone, even standing is its own movie, it's just not a very good movie. It's it's very typical slasher. Um, it, which you know is, is what this film is uh, in a way in, in a way uh, you, you know they kind of credit Halloween with with establishing that kind of pattern for slasher movies this actually came before so maybe the slasher genre owes a little bit to this but it's unique in its own way too yeah I, I sort of feel like this one um, it's sort of the forgotten one right yeah uh, and I don't know why I mean it's got you know People in it that you're going to recognize, you know, some pretty big names, people who've gone on to do some uh, other big stuff. And it wasn't really received well initially. I think it did moderately well at the box office. Critics hated it, but that's no surprise. Critics aren't usually big fans of horror, but um, over the years, it's kind of established a cult following, and I think we horror fans are aware of it, but uh, general public, maybe not so familiar.
0: Like you said, it has uh, names in it that we'd recognize, Mm -hmm. and a director, Bob Clark. Who, this is not his first Christmas film. <laughs> uh, oh, right. He did uh, the, A Christmas story. You know what? I think
1: I knew that at one point, and I had completely
0: forgotten. Now that you say it, I remember. So, uh, you know, Bob Clark, we have to thank for the dark and the light side, both of the holidays, in my opinion. I mean, yeah. you, you know, Bob Clark had a great career. He did Porky's. You know, he's done both comedy, he's done the horror. He did a great Sherlock Holmes movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it, called Murder by Decree. No, no. Starring Christopher Plummer. And if you've seen enough of these Bob Clark films, you see a lot of... Visual. the visual style is very similar between all of them. It's almost as though he shot on the same film stock uh-huh. even, with all of them, but in same sort of camera lenses, and just the same style that I really appreciate. It's this classical filmmaking style mm-hmm. as far as the cinematography and the way that the shots are lined up and stuff goes. It's very straightforward, but it, he adds his own twist to it to really make it his own and to kind of modernize it for 1970s, uh, you know, late 1970s, 1980s. I, this guy also did Baby Geniuses. Okay, that was, oh. one, of his, <laughs> that was one of his last movies. So wow. he's had his hits and he's had his misses, but he's a really good director and I really like what he
1: does. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a, a quality film. The acting is good. The cinematography is good. Um, the story's pretty simple, but uh, effective. I, I think overall, it, it's, it stands out as, as being a quality film. And, you know, you mentioned Halloween
0: it's clear that John Carpenter had seen this film and was inspired by it because I think Halloween came out a few years later or maybe a year or two later right either 79 or 80 if I recall correctly yeah and this well this was 1974 Mm -hmm. Uh, and it starts out very similar to how Halloween starts yeah uh, with that point of view uh, camera angle of this guy coming up to a sorority house and we know he's a guy because we can hear the breathing right (laughs) it's kind of that (laughs) Uh kind of sinister point-of-view shot coming up to the sorority house, the Pi Kappa Sigma house, um, in its Christmas time, and there's a big party going on inside. Mm -hmm. And he peeks in the window, and he looks around, and then we see these arms out in front of him as he grabs the trellis and climbs up into the attic of that house, and that sets it up.
1: Yeah, and that's really kind of what, you're right, Halloween made use of that. But this one takes it even farther in that, really, when the killer is around we only ever see from the killer's pov you never i mean you get little glimpses of the killer's hands or maybe a little bit of silhouette and shadow but very little we never see uh the killer straight on um and i think that's a really effective thing the the writer uh of of the movie was not on board with that idea that was the director's idea uh but when it when all was said and done, the writer ended up being very satisfied and thought that that was actually the right way to go. And I agree. I think it's 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 kind of cool.
0: Oh, yeah, it's a really good call in a couple ways. I mean, it, it's a good call because it keeps a little bit of a mystery, at least for us, as to maybe the killer somebody that we see in the movie later on. Um, but then... You're right. It's just that notion that you don't see him in the shadows. It's that whole deal that we've talked about before, about how sometimes less is more. Yes. And letting your imagination fill in. Even when we get outside of his POV and there's a murder or killing going on, we don't get more than a glimpse of a hand or an eye. Right. <laughs> or or anything like that. And the murders themselves are actually very tame. Um, they're not tame in what they are. Right. I mean, people are getting stabbed, people are getting, you know, suffocated, but... You re- it really mostly happens
1: off camera. Mostly, I mean, you get little glances, uh, glances, glimpses, glimpses, uh, glimpses of of the violence and gore, but it's not the central focus. And again, you know that was clearly a very intentional decision that was made. And it is there, whether it be in literature, whether it be in film or whatever. I really think that sometimes leaving things to the imagination can be far scarier. One of the examples I always use is um, Funny Games. Have you seen Funny Games? I haven't. It's it's a home invasion movie, and it's kind of typical in that way. But most of the violence, and it's extremely violent, but most of the violence takes place out of frame. You will have the, uh, it's a family, and in the family, the action will be going on, and, and they're tormentors, but as soon as the violence starts, all of the people move out of frame, but the camera stays and so all you you hear everything um, and it's very effective in that movie and it works it works here too yet yeah, hearing things is sometimes even worse right <laughs>
0: you, you when you hear those screams and your brain is left to the imagination you know that's another thing I think this film does very effectively is the use of sound mm-hmm. we do we hear we see shadows we hear creaking noises both in the silence the the sort of not-so-quietness of an old house. Mm-hmm. You know, this is one of those movies that does a really good job of making the house a character. I yeah, think.
1: yeah, and I thought, you know, it's really a very stereotypical kind of movie sorority house, you know, this big old house, and uh, it, it's decorated for Christmas. It just it feels very real, you know? It, it feels like they've stepped into an actual sorority house and, and just kind of filmed their, their story and it works. Yeah, and it's cozy, too. Don't mm-hmm. you get a cozy... I, yeah,
0: homie. That's. It, it's such a good Christmas movie if it wasn't for people getting murdered.
1: <laughs> I know, and that's funny. You know, the opening shot is just, you know, this. it's a, an outside shot of the house and the snow is falling and the title comes up and it's Black Christmas and it's kind of in this festive holiday font. I mean, it feels very <laughs> much like you're getting into a holiday movie, but then it gets into the brutality right away. I mean, the first murder, I think, is not even 10 minutes in it's really quick again it's kind of that juxtaposition of having a setting that seems safe and secure and then putting people in peril there Uh, it's kind of it's a convention that gets used a lot but well done yeah it's
0: really good and that first murder is really what sets the plot in motion the plot really focuses around that first disappearance is what it is to everyone else Claire, uh, Claire Harrison is yeah. the girl who goes upstairs to pack her things. This is of course Christmas time and this is a sorority house and so they're all going to be going home for Christmas. Some of them are staying and there's a house mother in, as well who's coming in and kind of giving them their last presents that so they're doing a little exchange before they go.
1: Here we have the Queen of Vaudeville. Hey, okay, do Hi, hey, I've been shopping. You know, I think the stores must take cracky lessons this time of year. Oh, I never saw such a bunch of junk. Mrs. Mac, come in the other room. We've got a surprise oh, for you. Come on! We've got another coffee. Oh, I'm not
0: this girl goes upstairs to pack her things and, of course, uh, gets killed. Mm-hmm. And uh, immediately hustled up to the attic. Out of sight. So nobody finds a body, nobody anything. And so when her father shows up the next morning looking you know, looking for her and he's she's not there, uh, that starts into motion this question, which is juxtaposed with this issue that apparently they've been having for a little while now, uh, which is that creepy caller, right? Um, who's been making these prank calls to them? Really,
1: really interesting. Yeah, and prank the first the first time that we get a call is before the first murder, and and they say that they've been getting these calls, and they call the guy on the other line the moaner, and uh, the first call is kind of your typical nasty prank phone call, you know, a lot of just kind of gross sexual stuff, and... (laughs) He's expanded his act. Could that be one person? No, Claire, that's the Mormon Tabernacle Choir doing their annual obscene phone call. Now, maybe you've seen this movie multiple times. This is really only my second time seeing it all the way through. I'm a little confused. Was the initial caller that they had been dealing with for a while, is that the same guy as the killer? Or is it just a coincidence that they had been getting weird phone calls, and so they weren't really particularly surprised when the killer started calling?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's left ambiguous, and... It may be even be a fault of the script, I don't know, where, oh, it's that moner again. And as we learn out later in the movie, spoiler alert, um, this is the moner calling from upstairs. But when they get that first phone call, which is clearly the same night that we see through his point of view, him coming into the house either he was calling previously, maybe he sort
1: of set this up. Well, and the reason that I wondered is because the nature of the calls changes. You know, you get that first one that's very sexually suggestive and gross, but then the calls that come after that, Aren't like that anymore. Mm. It's it's still strange, but uh, instead the person on the other end of the line is speaking in different voices. Um, sometimes a feminine voice, sometimes a masculine voice, and not the same voice throughout a call. It's like he's having a dialogue with either somebody else who we don't know is there or himself using different voices. So I don't know. I, I, I guess it's not an easy question to answer. Yeah, it's a very schizophrenic thing, and I don't think the movie ever really solves
0: that question, but it is an interesting one you bring up, especially having seen it a couple times. Well, if this was the not the first call, then... Where did the previous calls come from? Right. I don't know. It's hard to say. Well, maybe this guy is a little more sort of a thoughtful and planned out kind of guy than we think. Although the nature of the calls and the nature of everything that goes on seems to suggest we're talking about sort of a schizophrenic lunatic. Right. He
1: keeps calling and he keeps making references. He's saying in a kind of childlike voice, mommy mommy and then in a in a kind of harsh female voice yelling, you know, billy, you uh, don't do that and um, then sometimes there's uh, the sound of maybe a baby crying or something. Agnes and, is Right, there there's time? and there's this whole But that's part of what I don't or part of what I like about it is that they never explain that. Mm-hmm. I think that not knowing is kind of creepier. I th- in fact, the remake goes way into that backstory. Uh, you, do, you do see the killer throughout, and you get lots of flashbacks to the backstory behind this these weird phone calls. Uh, and in the remake, it's, you know, this kid was abused by a terrible mother, and there was sexual abuse, and there was... I don't know, I think maybe he was responsible for the death of a little sister or something like that, and that's what drove him to the breaking point. And you do see him throughout the course of the film, and... I don't know why they made this choice, but like the killer is like terribly jaundiced. Like he's he looks like an Oompa Loompa, uh, <laughs> and it, it just it's 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 silly. It's 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 not nearly as suspenseful uh, as as this film is. I didn't like it nearly as much. Well, it's funny, you know,
0: everything you were describing, except for the jaundice, it was what my brain was imagining when, when you're trying to sort of piece together this character. Because you hear this childlike voice, you hear this mother's voice, you talk about, there's talk about the baby, and oh, what did we do? And oh, we, don't tell her what we did, and don't let Agnes know. Your, your brain is just filling in this backstory of this character so much more effective. And if there had been some flashback scenes in
1: here it would have totally killed it for Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it does. And, you know, it, the, like you said, the things are suggested. You kind of put the pieces together. It's almost, at least the sense I got of it, was um, kind of a Norman Bates kind of thing mm. where uh, this, this killer is kind of, you know, speaking from his own character but also kind of playing the role of his mother and there's another psycho connection the first girl that he kills he takes her up to the attic and he puts her in a rocking chair where she remains for the rest of the the movie and he interacts with her at times and and rocks her in the chair, he gives her a little baby doll to hold I think he says mommy around her sometimes so it kind of gave me that Norman Bates kind of feel and then something I
0: didn't, you know I've seen this movie enough times but it wasn't until this time through, there's always something new you know and that. That's how you know it's a good movie. Yeah. Um, It wasn't until this time through, that last scene that sort of pans out from the house, it just hit me that this first body has been on display in the top window of this three-story sorority house this entire time anybody with a pair of binoculars or maybe who would even just get close enough to the house and bother looking up in that window would have seen the figure that they've been looking for the whole time. Right.
1: Well, now, <laughs> it, it bothered me a little bit. I tried not to let it bother me because I knew that it would you know, throw a big wrench in the plot, but not only is the first girl's body up there, but the house mother eventually gets murdered up there and her body remains up there too. There, The police are involved. The whole town is like formed a search party. Everybody's looking. Nobody ever thinks... To look in the attic of the house. <laughs> now, I, I, I guess that kind of makes sense. I guess your first thought wouldn't be, oh, they've disappeared into their own home. Yeah. But if you were, you know, and, and eventually... Um, they don't find the sorority girl that is is missing, but a local woman also comes to the police station to report her young daughter missing, and the search party does find that girl in a park. Um, so they know there's a killer out there, but uh, they don't they don't think to check the attic. Oh well. Yeah, it's a really interesting juxtaposition. I mean, especially once the police
0: get involved. And this is another thing about Bob Clark's films is that he likes to inject a lot of humor into them. And this movie is just. Dripping with humor.
1: Oh yeah, and it's dark humor, but it's really funny, and, and not even all of it is is that dark. Some of it's just just straight just up goofball. funny. Yeah, I, I read that uh, Clark claimed that he rewrote a good amount of uh, the original script, and that it was it was him who inserted that comedy in there. And it's it's a dark film and it's a spooky film, but you'll but you'll laugh. We laughed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the comedy. We've we've watched some other movies recently where the comedy is kind of. Put Over front the and center. Yeah. And that's not the case here. Uh, you know, this is, it's suspense, it's it's horror. Um, there are just little moments uh, of lighthearted comedy, and, well, and they work. Well, you know, I think the pace of the movie has a lot to do with that. This isn't one of those
0: films where, oh no, somebody's missing, and then. Almost everybody conveniently is acting normally again five minutes later. A lot of these slasher films, oh, no, we discovered Sherry's body. And then about 10 minutes later, everyone's acting as though their friend right. is dead. You right. know, this is like a genuine concern and really sort of this tone across the film where the the father who's looking is is staying at the sorority house a little bit. And they have to kind of entertain him. And in the meantime, he's not approving of Almost anything that's right. going on here, <laughs> one of the girls is like a perpetual drunk. She's played by Margot Kidder, and her name is Barb. And uh, she's making lewd comments and <laughs> talking about watching turtles have sex at the zoo. Oh, and- God, and she's, she's just <laughs> fall down drunk
1: through the whole thing. There's a certain species of turtle that can screw for three days without stopping. You don't believe me, do you? Well, I mean, how could I make something like that up?
0: Uh,
1: Barb, dear,
0: uh, I, I, I... Uh,
1: no, really, they did three days, 24 hours a day. <laughs> Can you believe that, three days? I'm lucky if I get three minutes. Do you know how I know this? Because I went down to the zoo and I watched them. It was very boring. Well, actually, uh, I uh, didn't stay for the whole three days. I went over and I watched the zebras because they only take 30 seconds. (laughs) Premature (laughs) ejaculation. And you know Margot Kidder—that's one of the big names. Was this pre-Superman or is this post-Superman? I mean, she she became a pretty big name there for a little while. I think it's j- just pre-Superman. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, she's she's very young and and beautiful. She she still looks maybe a little bit too old to be in a sorority, um, <laughs> but she plays the character well. She's the brazen one, you know, the one who's always smoking, always drinking. They throw a party for under a Christmas party for underprivileged children. She's <laughs> giving booze to the kids. Uh, (laughs) She's a funny character, and uh, I was kind of, you know, I've seen the movie before, but... It's disappointing when she goes upstairs to go to bed and you know that you, you're not going to get any more of yeah. her because she's a fun presence in the film. Well, the other person I really enjoy watching is Olivia Hussey. Oh, my God. I, I, she's gorgeous. She <laughs> is one of the most beautiful women I have ever seen in my life. Um, she, of course, uh, was famous for Romeo and Juliet. <clears throat> I remember that was always the version that they would show us in high school, and she was very young and so pretty in that, uh, and I kind of fell in love with her then. And then, you know, I I know that she's kind of worked consistently, but it hasn't been a lot. The things that I uh, remember her from are this and Romeo and Juliet and It. Um, she was uh, one of the lead character's wives uh, in, oh, in that right. Stephen King uh, film. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and she was good in that, too. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's kind of the central character, She she's kind of the final girl uh, uh-huh. of, of this, and she's so pretty and so soft spoken, and um, you really get attached to her. She's almost the most she's again almost the uh, Jamie Lee Curtis of this
0: film as well, in that she's the more innocent-ish ish But
1: I I also like her in this, you know, it it almost had kind of a women's lib feminist kind of feel to it. You know, she's this uh, she's a soft, beautiful girl, but she's strong-willed and strong-minded. She calls her boyfriend at the beginning and says that she has urgent news, and he said he can't meet her until the next day. When she finally does meet him, he's a concert pianist, she goes to where he's rehearsing, and um, she tells him that she's pregnant, but that she plans to have an abortion. And uh, he is very, very much against that. Later on, um, he comes back after he fails his recital.
0: <laughs> his recital for three people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he,
1: he does poorly because I guess he's worried about the baby or whatever. He comes back to her uh, at the sorority house and says, you know, I'm, I'm quitting the conservatory and we're going to get married. And she says, no, we're not. <laughs> uh, and I, I, you know, I've got my own dreams and I've got my own things I want to do. And I don't want this baby. And that's the end of it. You know, she really kind of she holds her own. She doesn't. She, does. she doesn't falter but she plays it
0: very real you know it's it's like this would go down in real life yeah. she's not screaming off the wall don't no. you dare tell me what to do um, he's he becomes a very sinister person in this mm-hmm. um, and that keys in pretty heavily into the plot you know, when he doesn't, when he doesn't make his, his recital doesn't go well. And after his argument with her, he goes back to the conservatory and smashes the piano in with, yeah. with this. I mean, that was a little much.
1: Right. And then, <laughs> you know, when she says, no, I'm not going to, I don't want to marry you. And, you know, he's saying, Jess, let's get one thing straight. You are not going to abort that baby.
0: Peter, you're not going to tell me what I can and cannot do.
1: Jess, if you try getting an abortion...
0: I think you better leave. If
1: you try getting an I abortion... I said get out. You're going to be very sorry. Uh, very ominously, and then he leaves, and it that raises red flags for the police, and it kind of has you as the viewer kind of wondering... Maybe this guy was unhinged already, and so maybe he is the killer. Uh, who knows? Yeah, he does become the uh, red herring yeah.
0: killer uh, throughout it. But, but there's very good choices here being made. The abortion thing was really handled well. Uh, it was hinted at in the beginning, and then it kind of, you know, they talk about it openly. I think it's interesting then there's a very, again, it's these subtle moments that make this movie a great film as opposed to just a cool film. Mm -hmm. There's a moment where the carolers come to the door, and this is much later in the film, uh, when Jess, who was played by Olivia Hussey, Mm -hmm. is pretty much alone in the house, waiting for the phone call, because they're trying to trace where these calls are coming from by this point. Mm -hmm. Um, But she opens the door, and there are carolers out there as children, and you can see in her face, and you know, based on what she's talking about earlier, there's this moment where she's maybe hesitating about her choices. She's seeing these kids in front of her. Did you get that kind of feeling from that? Well,
1: there's certainly a subtlety to her performance, and you don't see that a lot in this type of movie. You know, it's usually pretty in your face, and um, she has a depth of character that is kind of unusual in your typical horror slasher film, and I think that kind of her performance alone, I think kind of elevates the film in a way. <clears throat> so yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. You know, if you want to
0: see Olivia Hussey in a good horror movie, um, she did, uh, it would have been mid to late eighties. There was a made for TV psycho. I think oh, really? it was like psycho four. And it was a prequel. I think they've since made another prequel like fairly recently, but this was the first sort of prequel that went back to try to explain Norman Bates and how he became who he was. And Olivia Hussey plays his mother.
1: Oh, and it is just announced I, honestly you know what I've seen it Have that you? is so funny yes I have seen it and, and, and Norman Bates is it, is that the one where he's like calling a, a radio therapist or something yes, like that yes I believe so mm-hmm. yes oh I have seen it that's right and she is good in that so movie so
0: good in that movie yeah and it's, just, and it's actually as I remember it was a really good movie but I haven't
1: seen it no like it's it. been so long I have yeah. no idea we
0: can't vouch for that folks yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it'll end up on a later episode we'll see you know talking about the house being a character another thing that just just the sound designer on this film was just spot on is that in a lot of movies when you're quiet your quiet house is a quiet house Mm -hmm. there's no sound maybe the sound of a person walking through it or whatever but that's it right but in this house there's a cat in there it's an old house, so it just creaks on its own. Right. It's a drafty house, so you know wind kind of gets in the windows. And there's never a moment of absolute silence in this house. Right. Even in the most suspenseful, quiet scenes where they're going around, you still hear this rush of wind kind of like blowing outside like it's a stormy day. You still hear, still hear, hear these creaks that really have nothing to do with anybody moving
1: around. It, it really does a good job of setting it up like it's in your own home. You I know? agree, and the quiet is really emphasized by the fact that the score is Really limited. Hmm. Um, There's not a whole lot of score. There is some uh, in some of the murder scenes and and leading up to some of those scenes. And the score itself is really cool. Um, It's a, a really. Uh, discordant uh, piano sound And and I read that um, the, the way that the musical guy uh, the Created The composer <laughs> Getting all technical <laughs> on me um, the, the way that he created the sound Was that he attached silverware To the piano strings And it gives it this really kind of Creepy, uh, rattly sound. It's, it's very effective, but again, it's used very sparingly, and a lot of the times, it's just focused on the quiet and the stillness. Yeah.
0: In fact, you pretty much know someone's gonna die when you start hearing those those sounds, because that's about the only time it it comes
1: in, right? Yeah. And the other, you know, the other thing, and again, this is very coincidental, but it's a movie. You deal with it. Every time there is a murder there's something going on that masks the sound. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the carolers. There's a murder when the carolers are there. Um, the first murder occurs during a party and they're all uh, screaming. screaming and toasting and other things. The only little qualm that I had about the quietness of the house is that you find out at the end of the film, I think we've already mentioned, that the calls have been coming from inside the house. Mm. Uh, and sometimes Jess, the main girl, sometimes she'll be talking to the guy on the phone and there's nothing else going on and there's nobody else in the house making noise. And I kept thinking, why wouldn't she hear him? <laughs> like she's listening on the phone, but her other ear is free. And in the phone, you can hear he's screaming and moaning making and making a lot of noise. Right. And these calls aren't coming from the attic. They're no, coming just from upstairs. just the line upstairs. Yeah. And and I I think that a couple of the times when he's on the phone. Is he actually committing the murder at the time? At least once. We know that. Because that's, what was her name? Phil? Phil. Phil. Mm-hmm. Uh, played by another very recognizable actress, Andrea Martin, who has gone on to do tons of stuff. Uh, she's in um, the My Big Fat Greek Wedding movies. Very recognizable. In fact, she came back for the remake. She plays the house mother in the remake. Ah, and how it, about that house mother? Yeah. <laughs> 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 she's played for the comedy, and I'm so glad she is. Unabashedly so. Oh yeah, she's just this, she's this little but rotund kind of woman, and in every scene she's constantly searching out these hiding places where she's hid these bottles of booze, and she tries to you know put on the the face of the responsible house mother, but really behind anybody's back she's cursing like a sailor and swilling <laughs> her uh, whiskey. Very funny. I read that they wanted uh, Betty Davis for that role. Oh gosh, uh, it would have been very different. It would have. <laughs> I liked this lady. She was funny. Good, well, good character actress. And and when she
0: dies, they don't really realize she's missing, do they? They just kind of figure she well, because left. I, or...
1: Yeah, I think that she was going to be leaving too. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. thing. The the disappearances are kind of explainable because people are leaving um which is like life again right you know you
0: don't keep track of everybody all the right. time oh he right. must have left the party oh she must be sleeping or whatever and sometimes she is in the room you think she's sleeping but she's you know been stabbed by a crystal unicorn know, unicorn yeah. and
1: that happens yeah by uh, be- <laughs> uh yeah at the end of the movie they still don't know that she's dead no she, i mean she's just hanging up there uh, in the attic um, which they still haven't checked, and uh, so yeah, so they, they never, as far as we know, they
0: don't find out that she's dead for a while. Well, and the the film too is is nice in that. I'm like I've seen a lot of sorority house type horror films, and they always end up with a pillow fight involved. they there's like the showers and stuff. They're they're playing goofy games or they're on the Ouija board or things like that. This is totally like a sorority
1: house would be. Yeah, these girls seem very real. Now, of course, Olivia Hussey is very beautiful. Uh, Margot Kidder has a very unique, distinct look. But beyond that, the girls just look like real girls that you would know. You know, the the lady I just mentioned, Andrea Martin. She's you know got glasses and curly hair. She's not stereotypically gorgeous. She's cute. She's pretty. But But she's not stereotypically mousy either. Right. No, just very real characters.
0: Then they, of course, interact with the policemen. And again, more of the nice subtlety in here is that actual college feel where these are kids removed from the town. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a few little jokes, a few little comments they're made about townies yeah. and about people from the town, and you get the sense they're at a town that's maybe they're a little Midwest, maybe they're a little more Southern. It's never really said where right. they are, is it?
1: it? No, but
0: it feels very suburban. Mm-hmm. And the um, the the police station's rather small. There
1: are two detectives there, a few policemen. Uh, yeah, there's Lieutenant Fuller, who's played by John Saxon who always uh, ends up in these movies. Always ends up as the <laughs> cop in these movies that he uh, played um, Heather Langenkamp's. Dad in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Again, yeah. you know, the, the police officer searching out you know, <laughs> for the I mean, murderer. The the right. But he's good. I mean,
0: I, I like him in this. Uh, in this. And, and that other cop who's sort of played for comic relief as well, although, yeah. as I realized again in this film, is sort of responsible. His bumbling kind of screws over Jess at the end. Yeah. Because he's the one, and we only hear it and we only see his shoulder, but he's the one who says, All right, now you be sure to, you know, lock everything up and make sure everything's good. And he just looks in on her and flips the light off in her bedroom, right? Leaving her pretty vulnerable. much forgotten and vulnerable in the house when nobody intended to do that.
1: Yeah, the way that it plays out is, you know, we figure out very early on that the the killer's in the house. That's not hidden from us, the audience. But, of course, the girls don't know. Um, and so they kind of get picked off one by one. Claire gets picked off while she's packing. Then the house mother, you know, she's looking around and she stumbles upon Claire and then she gets killed. Uh, Margot Kidder's character is drunk, passes out in bed, and she gets killed there. And it's, you know, it's paced well so that there is a murder every so often. But eventually, we get down to the final girl, which is Jess. And the police have been trying to trace the phone calls and they finally do. This was a little moment of unintentional hilarity for me. The, The tracing of the phone calls. Now, I don't know if this is really how this ever worked, but it was hilarious. It was like... In order to trace the phone call, Jess had to keep the guy on the line because the guy who was doing the tracing had to find where it was coming from, and in order to do that, he had to run around in what looked like a huge warehouse full of switchboards and find the one that was currently in use and plug into it. What he was following when he was running and doing that is it, it, completely unclear to me. I have no idea, but it made, the proce- it made me appreciate phone tracers. If it's really that <laughs> difficult of a job, not only is it complicated, it's aerobic. It's a
0: runaround. Check all the different well, outlets. Well the thing I've always found funny is, oh, it's always such a hassle to trace them, but the phone company doesn't ever seem to have any trouble billing you. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, you get that bill that you don't remember. Right. We used to get
1: those bills and list it on. Oh, it was yeah. every phone oh, number yeah. that was uh, that was called and done. But anyway, so then she's the last one in the house. The cop calls. He's not supposed to tell her that the killer is in there, but he can't convince her to get out, so he finally spills that information. But she still thinks that two of the girls are still alive upstairs. She doesn't realize that uh, Barb and... Um, Phil. Phil. have been dispatched dispatched. and so she wants to go and, and check on them so she does she goes up there she finds their bodies and that is when billy the killer makes his appearance to her and that's kind of i think probably the most iconic scene from the film um you just see through the crack in the door. His wide, glaring eye, and he's kind of doing his whispering, mumbly thing, and she sees him. Um, it's a crazy looking eye. Yeah,
0: it is yeah. the craziest. It's a, the kind of eye to give you nightmares, right? And it, funnily enough,
1: nobody knows who that is. <laughs> Bob <laughs> Clark couldn't remember. Yeah, I couldn't remember the who it was. Director photography couldn't. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but so, and then it's it's kind of a chase through the house, and a, not really a very long one. You no, know, usually in these you know kind of movies that that last chase is is pretty extensive and there's usually you know some struggle and then a runaway and then catch you again and more of a struggle um this he just kind of chases her for a little bit he gets his hands on her hair once and pulls her down um, but she's able to get up and away and she goes down and locks herself in the basement and he at first is is pounding on the door but eventually he stops and you hear footsteps walk away and you hear the back door close then in the sort of shadow of the basement windows
0: you see a figure coming down and is trying to get in right and that is uh, as and then a hand breaks through to actually come in and it turns out to be Peter Jess's boyfriend and this is a point at which we're also maybe wondering if, if there isn't going
1: to be some strange reveal here. Mm-hmm. It, could, it could be. I mean, it leaves it... You're still wondering. It doesn't seem so. No. I mean, you think you know what's going on. You think that there's a different guy in the house. But the way that the pieces fall plausibly it could be the other guy and that's what uh jess is left thinking you know she doesn't know and and uh, she thinks that it is him and so the cops
0: end up coming in because they've traced the call and, uh, and they hear screaming as they're coming in they break down into the basement and they find her with him on his with peter in his lap and she's holding a uh, poker from the fire and he's bloody and she's got some blood on her and at first you think they're both dead uh-huh. Uh, but then her eyes flitter, and they take her away. And from there on, again, it's a beautiful moment in the soundtrack where everything is almost told to you off-screen sound. We see Jess in the bed, and the doctor is sort of bent bent over her and pulls up and says, oh, it's going to be a few hours before She's she sedated, wakes up. right? Yeah. And uh, the cop is like, well, we've got to deal with all this press, and oh, let's get them out of there. And the doctor's like, don't worry, I'll sit here and wait with her. But then... The father of uh, the first girl, Claire, who's sort of been hanging around the yeah. whole time, uh, faints, probably at the prospect of
1: having... To, right, they say know. he's in shock, we have to get him to the hospital. So
0: that gets the doctor out of the room, and he, you know, then the other person who's in the room helps him with him and takes him downstairs, and you sort of hear everything happening, and... It, Everyone sort of forgets about Jess
1: upstairs. Right. And anyway, they think they've solved the problem. Right. They think they have the killer, or he's, he's dead, so threat's gone. Yep. And then it just slowly pans back out of her bedroom where she's you know, sleeping peacefully on top of the bed. And, and it pans down the hall back up to the uh, ladder for the attic, which we have seen multiple times. We know that's where Billy has been hanging out. Uh, and once again, we hear the creepy mumblings, the creepy giggling. We cut to a shot outside the house where there's a police guard standing outside, but the house is completely dark. And the very last thing we hear is the phone ringing again. And every time the phone is rung before, it was either right after or during one of the murders. So... Poor Jess. Uh, no. I don't know. It's a slightly ambiguous ending, but I
0: think we're just meant to put the puzzle pieces together there.
1: Yeah, when the distributor saw the ending, they wanted the they wanted the director to change it. What they wanted, which didn't happen, you know, you know the, Bob Clark stood his ground, but what they wanted to happen was for Jess to be left alone in that room with Chris, who was the boyfriend of Claire, the the first one who had died and who had been around and searching throughout. Jess was going to be left in there with him, at which point he was going to say, "Don't worry, Agnes, it's me," or something like that. Don't and then tell they right, were right, right, right. Um, so they wanted Chris to be the killer, but uh, that would have cheapened the heck out of this. I movie. think so. And that would have been—it would have been so out of left field that it mm. would have felt like you'd been punked. You know, like, <laughs> well, there would have been so many loopholes. You know, because he was with the
0: search party, and you know, we had seen it just. Once you start doing POVs, once you know the murderer's hideout, you know, right. and that he's pretty much up there most of the time,
1: it becomes very hard. And besides, nobody in a coat that glorious could possibly be a murderer. <laughs> I guess I just...
0: he still has that coat. <laughs> yeah, that's <what> I hear. <laughs> But it is a glorious fur coat. <laughs> Sign of the times. Well, other signs of the times, too. The, the filmmaking style. You see a lot of zooms. You know, that's not something you see very often. But they're done very effectively. Uh, they're not done quickly in order to shock or anything, which right. is what a lot of horror movies yeah. at this time were doing. Yeah. They're, they're done very slowly. And Bob Clark uh, has a very nice style of taking his time. And he does it in a way that's interesting and that maintains suspense instead of extending the movie and making it boring. Right. I felt a lot like Fargo when I was watching this movie. And it's, some of it's just slice of life. Yeah. And it's it's sort of slice of life boring, but it's not boring because it's not played boring. Right. You know, I think of all the unnecessary bits in the police station when, um, when the girls are messing with the kind of bumpkin cop. Uh, and uh, he writes down fellatio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she tricks him into writing fellatio down as part of the phone number. And he doesn't know what that is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he comes in. He talks to the detectives, and you know, he hands him the phone number, and he leaves. You don't really know what's going on, but the shot still lingers in there. And the detectives are giving each other looks, and they're like and laughing. laughing. Right. And like you're like, what is this? And the and the scene should have ended. <laughs> and they go back in, and they it's about this number, you know, and they kind of talk about it. It's just that sort of in the same as Fargo. In 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 the midst of these horrible things happening, these people who are investigating these terrible crimes, life still goes on. Right. You know? And life still, interestingly enough, not like in the movies, goes on kind of as it always does. People don't stop and sit around and huddle in fear all the time whenever something happens. Eventually you know you kind of continue your daily routine in this in the midst of it. And this movie does a really good job of that, I think. Not just in the police station, but in
1: the search party scenes, in the scenes in the house and stuff. Right. In the scenes uh, between Jess and Phil when they're kind of the last two in the house and they're concerned and they're worried and they have moments. Phil has a moment where she breaks down and cries, but then they also, you know, just kind of carry on. Mm-hmm. It, it it does feel kind of real. And I think it's a different kind of horror movie. It really relies more on the suspense. I would almost even say it's it's kind of more like a thriller, like a psychological thriller. Mm. Um, if it weren't for you know the the creepy insane guy. I mean that's that's just legitimately scary. Insanity is is a, a frightening thing. But beyond that, it it, it feels like. Something that could happen, like you—you you wouldn't expect a, a, a slaughter in a sorority house to really happen. But it doesn't rely on the horror cliches that so many of them do. Like you said, with the boobies and lots of jump scares. There really aren't a lot of jump scares no. here. I mean, there are some jumpy moments, but they're drawn out. Like you know somebody's gonna jump out, but it, they take their time. You're it's, waiting it's, for it. Right, right. <laughs> <clears throat> and and I like it. Yeah, you don't really see a lot of films like this anymore and that's a really general statement you know there's really quality films out there um calling this a really quality film you know i don't know if i go that so so far but it's a good movie and and i think that they were really successful in what they were trying to do
0: i don't know man i'd call it a quality film i mean i really would It, it and i get back to cozy it does such a good job of it could be like uh it could be like for example gremlins Gremlins takes place during Christmas, uh but you'd hardly know it, right? You take out a few Christmas trees and some snow on the ground and... and I guess maybe later on in the film it becomes a little more of a deal, but not really. This film just reeks of Christmas all the way it through. It does. And not because of the, you know, there's a Christmas tree in every scene or whatever, but it's cozy, and you have that feeling of, oh, this is that time of year when everybody's kind of leaving and saying goodbye, and here we are in this house
1: by the fire while it's blowing and windy out. And there's lots know? of traditional Christmas music throughout. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like a Christmas movie, which is kind of, uh, I, I think... I don't remember any movies before this that were seasonal, that were like centered around horror film, Right, like centered around a holiday. There have been all kinds now, you know, uh, Halloween and April Fool's Day and mother's day, virtually every holiday you can think of. Um, thanks killing. (laughs) Has there been a thanks killing yet? I don't know. Maybe not yet. I don't know. Just that Eli wrought the, yeah, (laughs) Um, but it is, I mean, there, and like you said, you know, he did a Christmas story too. It kind of has that same feel. it It feels just like, it feels like the same sort of town and community. Um, a lot of the shots are very similar. Like the outside shots of the house are very reminiscent of the outside shots of the house in a Christmas story. Um, so it does have kind of that quaint holiday feel to it, and then you throw in the other element, and uh, how it works, I'm not really sure, but it does. And maybe, well, you know, Bob Clark wrote Christmas Story,
0: so maybe he was drawing from some of those same feelings and emotions. Yeah, I mean, maybe. it's not too much of a stretch. They're They're, they're just those cozy earth tones throughout. This, the colors are very muted in this film. Yes, natural, very natural. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's really it's really nice. I don't know, it just feels warm. <laughs> For a horror film, it feels awfully warm. Yeah, and I think that's an accomplishment. You know, I really do. I, I think there's a, clearly a lot of care uh, that went into crafting it. a lot of thought behind the writing. as you said, some fantastic actresses uh, and actors, um, just doing stellar performances. Yeah,
1: the acting is
0: really solid and and a really just nice, ambiguous ending that does not disappoint So many horror films will you, you're with them right up until the end, and then you know oh, that ending sucked.
1: you know Well, and I thought that it was an a great ambiguous ending, and I now, I, I don't know if it would necessarily be a good idea but it leaves it wide open for a sequel. <laughs> and, and I guess I, I guess the fact that it didn't do particularly well at the box office kind of probably squashed any of that if there was ever any talk of it, which I don't know. But, I mean, it definitely left it open for it. The killer is still very much there. Nobody knows who he is. We don't know who he is. It, it, it wouldn't be a stretch of the imagination that he would continue uh, on this murderous spree. But I, I like the ambiguity of it, and I kind of like that it's not a everything gets tied up neatly the good guy wins kind of movie yeah
0: i wouldn't want to see a sequel to this movie without olivia (laughs) Hussey. i would love to see her (laughs) all right well thank you very much for joining us on this first of our series of holiday films this december meet with us next week for another episode until then this is Todd and i'm craig with two guys in a chainsaw